Hello and welcome to Ken Drew's Real Dirt, Gardening 2.0, where we chat about some of the trends, topics, some of the concerns for gardening's future. My guest today is Ken Green. Ken founded the Hudson Valley Seed Library in 2004, and the story of how that happened is one of the things we're going to hear about. Today, this is a company and farm devoted to producing seed for home gardeners and farmers, fostering a regional seed-saving community, and celebrating seeds through art. Hello, Ken. Hey, how's it going, Ken? Uh, well, you know, it, this is 2014 and it's snowing again. <laughs> yes, we're ready to start a lot of different seeds and it's just a little bit too cold and a little bit too hard to get back to the farm to do that right now. Well, I think the place for us to begin is with the story of the library and maybe first of all, what is the library? Well, that's a great question because uh, I think, you know, just in the last couple of years, there's been lots and lots of new seed libraries popping up all over the country, which is really exciting. Um, to see so much interest and activity around seeds. But a seed library isn't necessarily just one thing. Every library that does it is doing it a little bit differently, which is really cool. And is part of the importance of what's happening with seeds in general right now. But when I started the seed library, I was working at a small town public library in Gardner, New York. And I was learning a lot about uh, heirloom varieties. I was learning about loss of genetic diversity and some of the issues with consolidation of seed resources. I was learning about genetic engineering and all of these sort of big, overwhelming issues where I was like, what can I, what can I do about these things? And I realized that unlike a lot of other big global issues, there actually was something that I could do to help with some of those problems and that was learn how to be a seed saver and learn how to save my own seeds in my garden, which gave me a kind of independence from a lot of those issues and a way of contributing to increasing genetic diversity and making sure we save the heirloom varieties that we had. So I started learning how to save seeds, and that didn't really feel eventually sort of like enough, like I was making enough of a difference. And I love the library system public library system and how it's accessible to everybody and it allows us to share ideas, information, stories, fiction, nonfiction, history um, with everyone in our community. And so I decided that the library system could be used as a way of sharing seeds with so, others. So people can do people like check out seeds? So back then, you know, things are very different now in terms of what I'm doing. But 10 years ago when I started that, yeah, that was the first seed library in a public library in the country. People could come to our library, check out seeds, just like <laughs> checking out a book, Whoa. bring them home. And then the idea was that they would grow the plants and save some seeds from what they grew to return to the library at the end of the season. And how'd that work? <laughs> you said the idea. It, yeah, it, it, conceptually, it worked great. <laughs> In terms of practically, one of the first things I learned was that many gardeners don't know how to save seeds. Mm -hmm. Even really experienced gardeners, you know, who've been gardening 20 or 30 years or more, didn't necessarily have those skills. So not only were we losing the genetic diversity, and we were losing the stories that come with the seeds, we also had them losing 
the skills associated with how to save seeds on a small scale. And that knowledge led me to start teaching seed saving. And I think that's what really eventually led to quitting my job yeah. at the library, starting a seed farm and becoming a seed farmer and turning the seed library idea into something that was more accessible to even more people. So we put the library online and we started a full seed catalog. So people can buy seeds from us just like from any other catalog, or they can join in our seed library program online, which we've totally um, reinvented last year and are doing things a little bit differently. No, I only have like a hundred questions. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so your interest in heirloom seeds and open pollinated seeds and pe listeners uh, can go to the Ken Drew's Real Dirt website and uh, listen to a pr some interviews, for example, with Margaret Roach, because we talked about things like this. But uh, I, I guess maybe a question to ask is, uh, you said you were interested in, well, you're interested in the whole thing, but you're interested in heirlooms and you didn't say open pollinated, but I think that's what you're talking about too. And I'm yeah. I'm picturing these home gardeners and now do they have to grow these plants in isolation so that they can harvest seeds that are the actual heirlooms? Do you know what I mean? Right. So, you know, the, he, Along with the whole seed library concept evolving over the last 10 years from you know, a small town project to a full seed company, my ideas about heirlooms have really changed a lot too. 10 years ago when I first started talking to people about heirlooms, a lot of people didn't really know what that meant. I um, hadn't really heard of seeds referred to that way. Um, I think people are a lot more familiar with them now, especially heirloom tomatoes, although, of course, there's heirloom everything. Mm -hmm. um, but the way that I think about heirloom and open pollinated now is that these are the varieties that we have inherited, um, and our responsibility is to continue to develop them. So I know there's some people who are more on the preservation side of things, where they get in heirloom seeds, and or open older open pollinated seeds and they want to preserve them just the way that they come in um, which is an important I think is an important effort and I'm very happy that there's wonderful organizations like Seed Savers Exchange that are doing that our attitude and sort of what we do on our farm um, we think about heirlooms in two different ways one is heirloom restoration and the other is heirlooms of tomorrow so heirloom restoration is what we do when we get in varieties, say it was donated from a local family, like our um, Stone Ridge tomato, for example. Uh, town next door to us is Stone Ridge, came from an individual there who had family had been saving that seed for generations, had never been commercially available. He donated the seeds to us. We grew them out in our trial garden. And what we saw when we grew those seeds out was that there was a wide range of diversity within that population. So different sizes, slightly different shapes, different coloring, some that had more lobes, some that were smooth. And so I wrote back to um, Larry, who had given us the seeds, and I said, um, you know, think back to your childhood. What, when you think of this tomato, and you think back as far as you can think, what did it look like? What did it taste like? What did the, what did the leaves look like? 
And so he sent back a description uh, in an email that was pretty much the most salacious (laughs) 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 description of a tomato that I've ever read. I I was blushing while I was reading this email, but it was a really good description of the tomato, and it really helped me to understand um, what work needed to be done with that population to bring it back to the heirloom that it was. Because as you were sort of thinking about with isolation and you know cross-pollination, these varieties, these heirloom varieties, they haven't necessarily always been in a very isolated environment or with people who necessarily were um, very skilled seed savers, even though you know they they were saving the seeds and passing them on generation to generation. And so things changed over well, time. You, uh, for, I have a couple of questions. One is for you to explain open pollinated just a bit. But yeah. I, I can I can see where you're heading. You're going to be selecting the, exactly. the, the tomato that's most like the one that was described. And then you, you have to save those seeds and grow it out and select them again. Exactly. Is that what the process is like? Yeah. So, so to define open pollinated, when we're talking about open pollinated varieties, we're talking about varieties that um, have stable enough genetics that when we save seeds from them, as long as they haven't cross-pollinated with other similar varieties, when we plant those seeds the next season, they will grow a very similar, if not the same, vegetable or flower or herb or whatever it was that we had the previous generation. Hybrids, on the other hand, don't have a stable genetics. You have to buy them every year. Mm-hmm. You can't have that kind of independence in your garden because when you save seeds from a hybrid and plant it, it reverts back to random characteristics of the parent plants and, and often is sterile, um, which is a whole other conversation. But um, So we focus entirely on heirloom and open pollinated. Heirloom, all heirloom varieties are open pollinated varieties. I'm speaking with Ken Green. He founded the Hudson Valley Seed Library, and we're talking about, well, we're talking about the Hudson Valley Seed Library. We're telling the story of it, uh, and I, you're just making me think of more things. <laughs> to ask you, so, so if you're growing this Stone Ridge tomato on mm-hmm. your, I guess it's around three-acre farm, mm-hmm. um, do you have to grow it at one end of the of the farm and then grow a different tomato at another end of the farm? How do you keep those from cross-pollinating? So that's a great question. A seed farm looks, especially a small seed farm like ours, looks very different than a food farm or a farm you know, for produce because we have to separate our varieties using different techniques to make sure they won't cross-pollinate with each other. The great thing about tomatoes is uh, they're self-pollinating, and so you don't have to worry too much about cross-pollination. Uh, but we keep our each tomato variety 75 feet apart mm-hmm. to just make really, you know, really make sure that there's no chance of them cross-pollinating. Other varieties, other things we grow, like peppers, for example, uh, peppers will cross-pollinate, and uh, sweet peppers. Um, the sweetness is actually recessive and the hot peppers, the hot is actually dominant. Hmm. And so if you do get an insect visiting some sweet peppers and some hot peppers in the same trip, 
your sweet peppers are likely to go hot, which we don't want to happen. Mm. So with our peppers, we're actually covering them um, with row cover to make sure that insects aren't getting in and out so that we can be sure that we're keeping those varieties the same. Then do you have to go in and pollinate those plants yourself? Uh, we actually rotate what's covered and what's uncovered, so there's only one variety uncovered at a time um, so that um, they oh, can I be see. pollinated. They don't actually need insects to um, pollinate. They really just need a little like wind, a little trigger, um, because uh, they are perfect flowers, but they are open enough that insects can poll uh, transfer pollen between them. Um, so yeah, we do. We have a lot of tricks on our farm, mm. um, and it looks more like a, like a crazy quilt kind of community garden when you go to our farm because all the tomatoes aren't together and all the peppers aren't together the way that you would normally picture a farm. I I have this vision of this whole thing. You know, you, you thought you were starting this little tiny thing, and then it got bigger, and then it got bigger, and then you wished it would get bigger, and then it did get bigger, <laughs> and now you've got all these people participating and mm -hmm. you, you said earlier that this is a, something that's become you know that's becoming kind of big that people are paying attention to this and I think a lot of people don't know that and you've been traveling around the country and talking at farm conferences and I don't think anybody well hardly anybody knows what a farm conference is and weren't you just <laughs> in organic uh, in Oregon talking with the organic seed growers conference mm-hmm I was uh, so I, I do uh, I do a lot of speaking because I, I am very passionate about educating people mm -hmm. uh, about being more aware about where seeds come from. I think, you know, the first five years when I was still doing this as a small project at the library, uh, in the Hudson Valley, there was a lot of food consciousness happening. People were starting to say, wait a second, you know, who's growing my food? How far is my food coming from? Uh, how is my food being grown? And they wanted to connect with farmers and go to farmers markets and be more conscious about where their food dollars were going and also about their relationships and their understanding of where food comes from. And seeds are this invisible uh, farming industry behind farming. Without seeds, we have no farms. We have no gardens. And so, you know, my sort of soapbox mm -hmm. <laughs> has been about saying, okay, great, let's get more conscious about food. Let's also get more conscious about seeds. Where do seeds come from? It's Who's funny that you're them? saying How that. Are they them? It's like, and I think people think of seeds sort of like dust. You know, it's, uh -huh. this is the cheap nothing. But right. of course, it's the promise of everything. It is. It is. It's the foundation of our entire agriculture system. Well, if somebody is interested in growing an heirloom and they buy an heirloom from some company that does horribly in their garden, sometimes that's, well, it could be a number of reasons, but one thing might be that that heirloom isn't good for that area and that heirloom might do better in other areas. And you're talking about, you're sort of making a, a connection with the local food movement. And I, I guess in some ways the heirloom seed maybe people should buy locally, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's an interesting, um, it's really, you know, a, a very interesting topic. With, there's a lot to discuss about it, but uh, there's sort of two ways that I think about heirlooms and, and open pollinated. There has been a little bit of 
a bad reputation. And, you know, I've read some articles in the New York Times and other places saying, you know, heirlooms aren't what they're cracked up to be. Mm-hmm. But like you're saying, um, maybe you were growing an heirloom from the Deep South and you live in upstate New York and there's not enough days for that variety to, to mature or there's diseases that you have that they don't have in the South or the other way around. Uh, so being, you know, conscious about not just where your seeds are coming from, but also are they suited to your region is important, but we've lost most of the regional seed companies over time. And the seed companies have gotten to be multinational corporations. Right. But there is this whole new wave now of regionally focused seed companies, um, which is really exciting. Our focus is we, we sort of have two, two different lines of seeds. We have seeds that are very much regionally focused on the Northeast. So anyone with a freezing winter and a humid summer will do well with our varieties. Uh, but we also have varieties that are, do well nationally. Um, those are, tend more to be the varieties that are in our art packs which is a whole nother. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm going to ask you about that too. Of what we do, um, I, I really think that celebrating seeds is part of the solution for saving seeds and getting people to really um, see the stories behind the seeds. And so we commission artwork. And every pack in our art pack line, every pack is designed by a different artist. It's all original work that's created for us. And that's really a, a very national line, um, and those varieties are ones that we know will do well in multiple places in the country. I think you've been looking at uh, wine bottle labels <laughs> <laughs> a bit. Yeah. yeah. Well, what, what kind of people were at that Organic Seed Growers Conference? Who were those so, people? Yeah, that was one of the conferences I spoke at. That was a really inspiring conference. It was put on by OSA, the Organic Seed Alliance, which is a really important um, organization that's working to um, expand access to and the diversity of organic seeds, organically grown seeds that do well in organic gardens and, and organic farms. Uh, it's a every other year conference, and that that was their biggest year ever. There were over 400 people there, mm-hmm. which I think was double how many people were there two years ago. And that was breeders and researchers and seed companies uh, and farmers uh, and seed, small-scale seed growers and large seed growers. Uh, so everyone in that movement of, for organic seed was represented there. And I met kind of all of my my seed heroes <laughs> there, which was really just very inspiring and really exciting to have been asked to be part of that. Well, I'm I'm guessing that you met some of your heroes, you said, but that the that this is something that's interest of interest to younger people, uh, because the food the whole food thing is so popular with young gardeners, <clears throat> and it's just so appealing to. Well, I, you know, I don't want to say the next gen <laughs> of generation of growers, but I think that's who you're talking about, and certainly who's coming along. This this has got a future, unlike a lot of parts of 
well, I was going to say, a lot of parts of gardening are aging out, and a lot of parts of libraries are <laughs> aging out, mm -hmm. as yeah. you know. So did you, did, you see, did you meet a lot of young people who are just getting involved in this? Yeah, there was a whole range there. There there were, you know, like I said, a lot of my seed heroes have been doing this work for 20 or 30 years. Um, and they're very excited to see um, sort of the, this new wave of interest um, in seed and especially in, in organic seed and regional seed. So it, there was a really wide range there. But I, I think what's interesting about seeds and what and what keeps me part of what keeps me going is that seeds are really this amazing connector. So I, I'm able to have conversations and relationships and interact with people of all ages who all care about this. So whether we're talking about heirloom varieties um, and preserving the past and honoring, you know, generations before us and the seeds that, that came with them, um, or we're talking about heirlooms of the future and, and more, you know, modern OPs um, and sort of this younger generation that's coming up, um, it connects everybody. And when people are buying seeds from our seed catalog, you know, we get all kinds of emails and calls and, and you know, I go out and I speak uh, to all kinds of groups. I am able to connect with people who are politically different than me, culturally different than me, of a different age, um, even people who, if we talked about other topics, we would probably come to blows. You know, we really disagree about a lot of things. But when it comes to seeds, the foundation of our food um, and the importance of having that kind of independence and making sure that those seed resources stay in the hands of caring gardeners and caring farmers, um, it's amazing how many people that connects together. And, uh, you know, seeds are just very powerful that way culturally. Um, and I really, that's something I really enjoy about it, about the work that I do. Yeah, I'm afraid that in all your spare time, of which you have none, you're going to have to write a book, too. <laughs> I would love to write a book, but, yeah, it's it's the time. I wonder if there's a kind of a phrase for for new heirlooms. The, the way I think about it, and, you know, we were talking about this earlier, there's sort of two lines of work that we do through the farm. One is heirloom restoration, which we talked about, you know, bringing these varieties in and making sure that, um, they're staying true to um, what they were historically. But the other work we do, I call heirlooms of tomorrow. And all of our heirlooms came from crosses, from different things crossing, sometimes on purpose, sometimes by accident, sometimes a happy accident. Um, so, you know, we, we can't stop uh, time. Plants are alive, they're evolving, they're changing with us, our tastes are changing, people are changing, the climate is changing. So we need to make sure that we're continuing to explore new possibilities with varieties. The difference between doing that with hybrids and doing that with OPs is that when we're doing this work with open pollinated varieties, we have the potential to create the heirlooms of tomorrow. So when we find something that we think has staying power, that has the qualities that will help it stick around and make people want to keep growing it, then maybe in 20 years or 30 years or 50 years, 
that will become something that people consider an heirloom. And it's important for us to continue to develop these varieties and experiment um, through breeding um, and selection on the farm to make sure that we have varieties both that match our changing tastes and that continue to perform well in our gardens and on our farms as the climate changes and as farming, the landscape of farming changes. I've been speaking with Ken Green. He's the founder of Hudson Valley Seed Library and we'll have links to the Hudson Valley Seed Library on the Ken Drew's Real Dirt website. And Ken, I'm afraid we're out of time, but this has been fascinating. Hopefully we can continue the conversation at another time. That would be great. And thank you again. Thanks so much, Ken. January and February are the months when we order seeds, and March is when we got to get a lot of those seeds started. Join me again next week for another edition of Ken Drew's Real Dirt, Gardening 2.0.